0: Experiencing the news each day can feel like a journey. With Up First from NPR, it doesn't have to be. Welcome to 15 easy minutes of breaking news, clarity on international and national affairs, all handed over not from some floating voice in the sky, from us, Leila, A., Steve, and me, Rachel. Start your day informed. Subscribe to Up First wherever you get your podcasts. This is Marginalia, a production of KMUW Wichita. Marginalia. Marginalia. Notes in the margin of a book. Notes, commentary, and similar material written in the margin of a book. Comments and notes which are incidental incidental or additional additional to the main topic. In the margin of a book. Set on the campus of a small liberal arts college, Vladimir is the story of a popular English professor and her husband, the chair of the department who is under investigation for inappropriate relationships with former students. Despite this recent thrust into the limelight, our unnamed narrator is stoic, controlled, and very internal. This becomes interesting when considering that the author, Julia Mae Jonas, is a playwright. Stoic, controlled, and internal doesn't play well on stage. I recently spoke with Jonas about how Vladimir forced a transition from playwright to novelist, and about so much more. I'm Beth Golay, this is Marginalia, and here's our conversation. As I was reading Vladimir, you know, in my mind, I kept landing on the term delicious. And then as I was preparing for this interview, I saw at least two other blurbs or reviews who, you know, they use that same term in their descriptions of the book. So I'm going to own that. But I'm wondering, can you give our listeners an overview of the novel?
1: Sure. So the novel is about a very popular college professor who, when the book opens, her husband is being investigated for past inappropriate relationships with students. And very quickly in the book, she meets Vladimir Vladinsky, who's this celebrated experimental novelist who has just come to work at the college. He's a new hire. And she becomes very obsessed with him. And this obsession pushes her to these extreme actions and kind of disastrous results.
0: You know, I also saw the word timely in many of the reviews and blurbs. Did you begin this book before or after the onset of the Me Too movement?
1: So I started thinking about the book back in 2018, when I think there was kind of a surge in these Me Too cases and allegations and things being brought to light and many prominent men being taken down. And I started thinking about specifically the wives of those men and the positions that they were put in. And I started writing that out as a play first because I am, uh, or have historically been a playwright. And I wrote about 70 pages of the play, I would say, and then got to a point where I couldn't finish it and something about it didn't work really. And so I put it away. And then when the pandemic happened, I wanted to write a novel. I didn't want to write for theater anymore. (laughs) It didn't exist. So I realized that there was this character that I kept thinking about who would become the narrator of Vladimir. And she kind of lingered in my mind. And I started writing out some prose. I wrote the first chapter of the novel, and then I just knew I could finish it. There was something about her voice that I knew I could write in. It felt like it belonged in prose. It needed to be a novel. That was where it was going to live. And that was what the story really needed, you know. So that was what the process was. A long time of thinking and maybe a shorter time of writing.
0: Well, and I wonder now that you say you started this as a play. I mean, she's so stoic and controlled and internal. How would this even translate to a stage production? <laughs> it is so fantastic as a novel.
1: Well, I think it didn't really work as a stage production. Yeah. I think that's what really <laughs> was the thing that became clear and that's why it really did work as a novel because you do need that interiority you need her voice right in your ear right in your head you need to be in her head you need all of the nuance to bring you through the story otherwise it would be lessened. you know there would be something about the story where you wouldn't get the complexity of who she is you would miss a lot I think if you were watching it on the stage
0: yeah so your unnamed narrator is a 58 year old white woman and we see this me too moment through her lens first you know I'm wondering why you chose to leave her unnamed and also what prompted you to tell the story from the perspective of one who had accepted and perhaps even condoned her
1: husband's behavior? So I started with her being unnamed because I felt like I didn't want to have any distance from her. I wanted us to be right inside of her thoughts and I wanted us to be right inside of her feelings and emotions. And I felt like if we named her, all of a sudden we would start to see her as something separate. I didn't want us to see her as something separate. I wanted us to be inside of her experience. So it felt like to me, leaving her unnamed was a way to keep that active and alive. I also, I think wrote probably like 75 pages and realized I hadn't named her. And then I thought, well, I think I can keep this going. <laughs> I think this is telling me something. <laughs> um, and I can just keep it going and she can remain unnamed. And then in terms of somebody who has condoned her husband's behavior, you know, as you say, she's older than I am, for example. she's 58, and I think that I was interested in someone who had grown up in a different time. And who had had a different relationship to these indiscretions. I am, like I said, younger than my narrator, but I had many of my classmates in college dating their younger professors, and that was something that was very condoned and okay at the time that I went to school, and it's radically shifted now. And it was even kind of a status thing at the time when I was going to school, which is something that when you're a younger person now, you can't believe that that was something that was so acceptable, but it really, it really was. And so I swam in a different water than these students who are going to college today. And I think the narrator also swam in a different kind of water. And that's how I think about it. I wanted to explore someone who had just grown up with a lot of different aspects of socialization, you know, she's really been socialized in a totally different way than the students she's now teaching. And how do those two things interact with each other? I think that's something that I was really interested in. This book
0: tackles power dynamics between both men and women, as well as students and teachers. And many of John's accusers fell back on the claim that they were children, even though the narrator and John both saw them as consenting adults. You are a professor at Skidmore College, so I'm sure you witnessed the inner struggle of students who want to be considered adults, but might not have the understanding or wherewithal to know when they're being taken advantage of. You swam in the same waters, similar waters as the narrator. I absolutely did as well. I wonder, was it difficult for you to write from this perspective of your narrator who was approaching this with more of an attitude as acceptance, especially in light of the Me Too movement?
1: It's interesting because I think although the narrator has this sense of condoning her husband's behavior, she herself doesn't seem to have taken advantage of any of her students. That's not completely true. She mentions having an affair with a student back when she's a TA, and she's 28, and he's something like 22, so there certainly was that power dynamic present, but I feel like she herself actually has a sense of healthy boundaries when it comes to her relationships with her students, and so while she's willing to take a different perspective when it comes to her husband, I don't feel like she herself would act that way, so I think that there's something different between the way that she's allowing her or admitting that her husband can act and the way she herself would act and I also think she's really in process about the whole thing when it opens up you know when it opens up basically her life has kind of been upended you know she and John were the head of the college they were the kind of head of the department they were this matriarch and patriarch of the whole world and it's a very small school and in those small schools there are these senses of you know being these kind of celebrities, being these very powerful forces in these small environments. And the fact that that's been upended and that she's gone from feeling like kind of the top of the heap to the bottom of the pile, you know, causes defensiveness in anyone. I mean, she's going to defend her husband in certain ways, but I think she really is in process about it. I don't think she necessarily knows exactly how she feels about what John did. And I think over the course, of the book she's consistently kind of revising her opinions about it as she goes on
0: there was a point in the book when one of her students one of her favorite students brought a paper she had written for another class and she had received a bad grade on it and she was was came crying to your unnamed narrator and your narrator told her that you know it was a difference between honesty and emotional honesty so I'm wondering do you think your narrator was emotionally honest with herself
1: I think my narrator is very, very steeped in her own perspective, and I think she's trying to be emotionally honest with herself. And I think there's a lot of seductive emotions and emotional situations that are happening around her that she's leading herself into. So I think she gets seduced by her own emotions in certain moments, and she can't really see whether they're honest or not. I think throughout the book, there are these moments where she gets comeuppance, where she realizes, oh, I was making up a story for myself right there. Or, oh, I was really putting a lot on this person and now I realize that that's something that's actually not true. You know, in a way I feel like that's what the main journey of the narrator is is about trying to decipher like the veracity of her emotions.
0: I'm not sure if you had an audience in mind when writing Vladimir, but it seems like this novel can push the right buttons for so many subgroups, like like English majors, or like, you know, aging women, or those working in academia. So did you have an idea of the type of audience you wanted to reach with Vladimir? I mean, I think like
1: any writer, I wanted to write a book that I wanted to read. So, you know, for me, Pleasures and books have always been about uh, literary references that I could kind of find a map of and puzzle through or maybe even be taught something new. Or food writing, which would be like really sensual descriptions of food or comforting ideas of food. I wanted to write about uh, somebody who had a really strong voice and personality. Those are always books that that I enjoy living inside of. So I think I wasn't particularly thinking about targeting some audience. I think more I was thinking about writing a kind of book that I felt like would be a really good companion because those are the books that I like the most.
0: I want to talk about the title a little bit because the unnamed narrator is extremely independent. She has a somewhat unconventional marriage and she is certainly a feminist character, yet the book is named Vladimir. He's the object of her infatuation. And I'm never quite sure who decides the title, if it's the author or the publisher. First of all, who does decide the title? Was it you or was it?
1: I named it Vladimir when I submitted it. Yes.
0: And do you think naming it Vladimir takes away from your
1: unnamed narrator's agency? To me, it's about the power to objectify someone. And that's where I feel like it's a novel about gaze and looking through her eyes and she's able to name her novel Vladimir because she's, I mean, she didn't name the novel. I named the novel, (laughs) but the idea is she's able to make him her object in a way that countless, you know, men, male authors, but men in general have been able to make women their object, their, their thing. You could say Clarissa... Or you could say, obviously, Lolita, there's a little wink to Lolita, of course. But it's about that power to make something your object. You know, to
0: that end, I also want to ask about the cover design. Featured on your website are the covers for the United States, German and UK editions. And I know we're not supposed to judge book by their covers, but it's interesting how just how different these covers are. You know, everybody go to go to Marginalia right now, go to KMEW and look at the website, look at the cover. It shows a, a torso <laughs> of, of a man with his shirt open. And so we don't know what he looks like. We, we get that only through the reading of the novel. You go to the German translation and it only shows the man with his head thrown back in ecstasy is what I'm envisioning there or imagining. But the UK cover shows a woman <laughs> almost with her face in the corner, her, her head leaning against the wall. And it's clearly the unnamed narrator. So talk to me about the different covers and how they can affect the reading of the book.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting. It's a good question. I mean, first of all, I would say, strangely enough, I think they all work. I love all of them. And so that's the interesting thing to think about when you're thinking about what makes a cover work in a way all of these three very different takes are appropriate in some way to the book. I find the U.S. cover is very, very witty. It very much picks up on that idea of Vladimir as an object, as something we're looking at as this being, let's say that we can project all of our fantasies onto. You know, he doesn't have a face in the U.S. cover you're not looking at his face, you're not seeing him as a person, you're seeing him as really this object that you can ascribe all your, all your energy and desire and feelings onto. And he's, he's very seductive, his pose, even though it's actually you know not that seductive. And I know my editor and I talked a lot also about how there are actually so many covers that show female torsos that we don't even blink an eye at. I was reading three books recently, and I realized each one of them had a naked woman on the cover, and they were all these elevated literary novels. and I hadn't even noticed. I hadn't even noticed that what I was looking at was a female torso. And so I think what my editor and I really wanted to do was was bring that to light, I think, with the US cover and really show it feels so shocking people people laugh when they see the cover, they're they're a little. <laughs> <laughs> embarrassed I think when they see it sometimes or or they feel a little like ooh, you know and I think it's because it's this man displayed in this certain way and because we're still not really that comfortable with the idea of that in particular versus you know a a, a woman's torso you know behind some gauze or something like that which we see all, all the time and then for the German cover I really didn't have much interaction with Lessing. I love that cover um, and to me it's just about the beauty and exuberance of this man and how she's so drawn to his beauty and exuberance. And he makes her feel, you know, young in this this way. And that's what she finds so desirable about this crush is how young he makes her feel, how energized, how full of life in this way that she hasn't felt for a long time. And then in terms of the UK cover, I feel like they really got this sense of A woman who is in her own head, who is struggling with her own head, with her own thoughts around all of these complicated matters. Yeah, I think that's where (laughs) they they put their focus. And in a way, they're all right. So I think they're they're all very astute in their own way.
0: So we find out on page 180 that the prologue is actually autofiction of our unnamed narrator. And throughout the book, a novel is pouring out of her. But, you know, we never get a glimpse into that
1: novel, but did you know what she was writing? I had an idea about what she was writing, yes. (laughs) I thought she was writing about a 60s commune where there were all these kind of uh, moments of intrigue going on. Uh, And I had a little outline of what she was doing in her book as she was writing. But I really did wanna take that idea of just the energy of her crush is fueling this creative process because i've certainly felt that i was just reading a biography of tennessee williams and he was writing to someone saying you know i only write well when i'm in love with someone <laughs> and i think it is about that feeling of verve inside you that makes you sit up and want to create and so that's that's what i'd been thinking about in terms of her novel
0: we mentioned this earlier Vladimir is your first novel but you are a playwright. Talk to me about writing in these genres, you know, what was different for you and and how being a playwright might have informed or assisted you in the writing of this novel.
1: Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think I always felt like they were very, very different things and I would work on prose and I would work on plays and I would think they were two completely different skill sets and I teach playwriting and when I teach playwriting, I will often tell my students that plays have very little to do with novels and much more to do with poems or pieces of music. Because if you start to write a play like a novel, you're writing too much. (laughs) But I did find that there were certain aspects of playwriting that as a teacher and as someone who practiced it for a long time, I started thinking of, um, and that helped me in the writing of it. I would think, you know, certainly something like rhythm, you know, playwriting is really all about rhythm. But I also thought about the rhythm of the prose as I was writing in a way when I was writing in her voice. I also thought about events, if that makes sense, that basically by the end of every chapter, I wanted something to be different about the world. And in a play, I'll often teach that scene, you need to leave a scene in a different place than where you started it. It doesn't have to be plot-wise necessarily, it could be emotionally, but you something needs to shift so that when you start the next scene you're in a different world every you know you should be moving from a different world from place to place so i did think about that with vladimir i wanted every chapter to leave us in a in a new place where we couldn't go back you know we had to keep pushing forward i mean i think certainly the playwriting helps me with the dialogue i do think about the way things sound and in fact one of the hardest things about writing Vladimir, one of the things I felt like I really cracked was learning how to summarize dialogue rather than write it all out. I had, you know, in first drafts, there would be certain scenes that were just complete dialogue because I'm a playwright. (laughs) So I'm going to write it out with people talking. And I had to essentially figure out how to translate that back into prose. And once I figured out how to do that, I thought, okay, okay, I think I can make this into a book.
0: I also loved the way, yes, you had prose, then you had descriptive scenes, but then you had parenthetical inner scenes where it's like, it might be the way you prepare a a recipe or something or how you soak a pan. I can't remember now examples, but I loved that aspect because it added another dimension, another layer to the whole story.
1: Yeah, I was... I love books where there are digressions. I tend to find digressions are one of my favorite aspects of a book or a story. And I felt like this narrator has an opinion about everything and she's a teacher. (laughs) So she'll tell you about everything, anything you want to know about, she'll tell you her opinion about it. And because she's so kind of charming and bombastic in that way, it, it let me... Give these long parentheticals, yes, about the best way to make this recipe or what she feels about, you know, some sort of work of art or something like that.
0: Can you share with us a little bit about your own theater production company, Nellie Tinder?
1: Sure. So, my company, Nellie Tinder, is a company, and our mission statement is that we're interested in organic innovation, which basically means kind of theater aesthetic. I'm interested in making plays in which the actors play their own instruments and sing back up to each other and the stage is uh, very bare and you can use a chair and the chair can become the seat of a car or it can become a bed. You know, an idea of this kind of small space, intimate theater that doesn't rely on anything technological but really relies on the magic of live performance and the way that you know only in a play can a director put up a sign that says Poland and the whole audience will say oh we're in Poland (laughs) (laughs) in any other situation you would say they're not in Poland they're in a they're in a on a stage in Brooklyn. So that magic to me has always been what i found so incredibly interesting about theater and about performance. And so that's what my company is really kind of devoted to making. And then recently we have been working for many years now because it keeps being delayed, partially because of the pandemic, on this five play cycle that I've written, which are these responses to these five canonical male experience plays written by these big, you know, capital P playwrights we think of when we think of the American theater. And I've rewritten them for, from a woman's perspective and for just a variety of other people and experiences, thinking about them as these kind of dramaturgical examples of what we think theater is, and then reshaping them for a whole different, you know, group of performers and artists.
0: That's fantastic. I really
1: wish I could take some of your classes. <laughs>
0: so do you think you'll do another novel?
1: Yeah, I loved it. I And I really felt like this sense of, you know, I mean, I love writing plays, but when I was writing the novel, I felt like such a huge sense of relief, knowing that what I was writing was going to just be received by the reader directly, rather than giving it to people and having them interpret it, which is a really wonderful part of theater, but is also kind of an agonizing part when, you're, when your real craft is, is in the writing. So I feel like I'll continue to do both, but I really responded to being like, I can just perfect this and then I can give it to somebody and then they'll just read it the way I wrote it. You know, it's one-to-one in this way. That was so eye-opening and energizing. That
0: was Julia Mae Jonas, author of the book, Vladimir, which was published by Avid Reader Press. Thanks for joining us for Marginalia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editor is Luann Stevens, and our producer is Haley Krausen. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.